Good morning, church. Congratulations on uh, making it to uh, church today. Uh, ushers, there may be a few people who come in around noon um, wondering what's going on. Just be nice to them and help them to find a seat. They'll figure it out here in a few minutes. You know, I wonder if uh, the time change confuses God like it confuses me. You know, if God says, you know, before the foundation of the earth, I was going to do this at... Um, at 11.30 on March the 8th, and then God's like, oh, gosh, time change. I can't do it on that date. My idea is that we do the time change on Friday at 4. Wouldn't that be cool? So you're sitting in your office, you're working away, and all of a sudden, boop, and, oh, time to go home. You pack everything up. That's much better idea, I think, than messing with my Sunday morning. What do you say? Let's write to our congressman. All right. You ever wonder uh, who Jesus is? When I was a teenager, I thought I pretty well had it all um, figured out. I was pretty certain that Jesus was a real historical person who lived on earth and, and said the things that he said and did the things that, that he did. But I was also pretty sure that that was it, that he wasn't God, a good person, wise teacher, but not God. And maybe some of you young people have had similar thoughts. Who is he anyhow? And maybe some of you older folks are wondering the same thing. Well, we're making our way through the whole Bible, and today we're beginning our journey uh, through the New Testament. And we're going to begin with the beginning. Not the beginning of uh, your life, not the beginning of my life, not the beginning of a, of a new year, not even the beginning of a new century, but with the beginning, the beginning of time itself. And we find it in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made through Him. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, folks, this is the Christmas story here. And in 40 years of preaching, I, I have never preached on the Christmas story during the season of Lent. And, and, and this is John's version of the Christmas story, although nowhere does his name appear on the gospel. It was anonymous. Uh, the, the name John was actually added by the early Christians. But the truth is that, that he did live, leave his signature on this gospel. He calls himself what? The disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, he's not saying this in a prideful way, like Jesus loved me more than he loves you. Or you, but he's, he's actually doing that in a humble way by, by not putting his direct name on the gospel. And we think this was John the fisherman, son of Zebedee, brother to James. Uh, these two brothers, and along with Peter and Andrew, were in that inner circle of Jesus' disciples. And Jesus gave these two men a nickname. Do you remember what it is? Sons of Sons of Thunder. Can you imagine what kind of personalities they must have had? I mean, it really probably wasn't a, a nickname that you'd really want to have, you know. Kind of derogatory. And tradition has it that, 
that John lived and died in the city of Ephesus. Now, I'm sure you've noticed that John's version of the gospel is much different than the other three. I mean, Matthew and, and Luke, they tell the beautiful stories that we love to read at Christmas time. The, the trip to Bethlehem, the, the angels appearing to the shepherds, and, 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 and the star leading the wise men. Now, Mark's gospel skips those early stories. They go right to Jesus uh, as an adult with his baptism by, by John. And, and these three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the Synoptic Gospels because they generally agree on, uh, on, on the account of Jesus. But, but John's is, is really, really different. The Synoptics, Matthew and, and, and Mark and Luke, seem to be written for a Jewish audience. But John's Gospel seems to be written for a Greek audience. Now, many of you would know that the New Testament was written in Greek. And the Greek word that John uses here is the word logos. It's where our word logic uh, comes from. And when the Greeks heard that term logos, they would have thought of the, the logical, rational principle that they believed governed the universe. You see, the Greeks believed that there was this invisible, intelligent, integrating force that was behind the universe and that held everything together. In fact, the philosopher Heraclitus, who lived in Ephesus, where John lived, believed that the Logos was actually omnipotent uh, wisdom that guides everything, that steers everything. And the famous Greek philosopher Plato offered the possibility that, that uh, one day the, that word, that Logos, would usher forth from God. Pretty insightful. And so John is picking up on this Greek concept, and he's saying, that idea that you have of the Logos governing everything, John says, you are so close to the truth. He's saying that there is such a power in the world. And if there wasn't such a power in the world, then our being here would simply be the result of some kind of cosmic accident that happened a billion years ago. And if our life is simply the result of some cosmic accident, then our lives are really nothing more than an illusion. Not very inspiring, but a fair conclusion. But here's what John is saying. He's saying, you are not an accident. That there is this logical, there is this rational, there, there is this intelligent power behind the universe. And the name of that power is God. This logos, that force became one of us on that first Christmas, became a human being so that you and I might know who God is. And it's called the incarnation, and the word incarnation means that the, that word took on human flesh. That incarnation, that word, that, the, 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 the phrase carn, that's where we get our word carnivorous. So it literally means, incarnation literally means with flesh on, with meat on, something that we can see touch and experience. On Christmas, we sing Charles Wesley's famous carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Wouldn't that be cool if we sing that uh, this morning? Wouldn't that confuse everybody? But in his second verse, he says this, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity. 
And we see it in, in uh, the Apostles' Creed, although they don't use the word incarnation. They, they, they talk about it. It says, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. See, if you understand this concept, if you understand the incarnation, if you understand the word becoming flesh, you'll understand the very heart, the very core of the Christian faith. Now, why is this even important? Well, first of all, it makes us different from all the other uh, religions. Uh, on the one hand, you have religions that say that, that, that God is so eminent in all things that, that incarnation becomes the norm. And so if you're a Buddhist or a Hindu, for example, God is present in everything. That's called pantheism. Uh, God, and so God is the, the divine spark in everything. And therefore, incarnation is not just possible, it's actually probable. God is the incarnate of all sorts of people and things. And so Christians say Jesus is divine, and people from those religions will say, well, sure, what's one more God becoming human? They would not disagree. That's very possible. On the other hand, the family of religions like Islam and Judaism say that God is so he is so transcendent, he is so wholly other from the material that incarnation is impossible. And to say that Jesus was God is actually blasphemous. And so Christianity is unique. It doesn't say that incarnation is the norm, but it doesn't say it's impossible. It says that God is so close and, and so present to humanity that it's very possible, but he is also so transcendent that the incarnation of God and the person of Jesus Christ is a unique, unrepeatable event. And so Christianity has this unique view of this that sets us apart from all the other religions. And so John is letting us know right away that Jesus is unique and one of a kind. And in verse 2, John tells us that, in fact, it was this pre-incarnate word that was responsible for the creation of the universe. Listen. It says, He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And in Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he goes on in verse 6, he talks about uh, John the Baptist and how he fits in all this. He says, John was not the light, but was a witness to the light. You see, at times there was confusion about who exactly uh, John was. In fact, Herod was a little confused about this. And after he cut off John's head, and then he heard about Jesus and all the miracles he was doing, he was thinking, uh-oh, this is John the Baptist. Come back to life to haunt me. That pay me back for what I was doing. Well, John's gospel is saying, no, that's not, that was not John's role. John is the witness to the light. And the problem is, even though he created us, we didn't recognize him. Verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now, how, how does that happen? How, how did we miss the, the biggest event in human history? It's because of the darkness. 
You see, all of us, all humanity suffers from this spiritual amnesia. What I mean by that is, is we forget who we are and we forget where we come from. In fact, the, the, the Bible says that we actually prefer darkness and the reason is, is because our deeds are evil. Now that seems insane. Doesn't it seem insane to you? When you were a child, what was the biggest fear that you had? What was it? It was the darkness, wasn't it? Absolutely. I, I had always had two things that I did before I turned off my light as a child. The first thing I did was look in my closet. And then secondly, I looked where? Because you did too, didn't you? And then I, I turned off a light and went running from my bed and I got underneath the covers. Why? Those covers have magical powers, don't they? They protect us. They protect us. Keep those monsters from us. But when I became a teenager, I began to prefer the darkness. When I was getting ready to do something I wasn't supposed to do. Teenagers? We prefer the cover of darkness, don't we? So why do we fear the light? Because it lets you see life as it really is. And a lot of us can't handle that. See, I, I find it easier to hide the dark parts of who I am. My inconsistencies, my, my bad habits, my dark side. It's easier for me to hide them than to deal with them. And what causes this incredible contradiction in who we are as people? See, we, we appear to be one thing on the outside, but we're something else on the inside. We, we try to hide who we really are from others because we figure if they really know who we are, they're not going to like us. So we, we want to appear as really, really good people, but we know we're not. And so we keep those things hidden, you know, in our closet. That's why we, we, we hide our codependent habits and our, and our addictions. That's why we, we sneak around when we're getting ready to do something wrong. I mean, how many times do you, do you hear it said over and over again, somebody murders someone and, and they go to interview the family and friends and they're like, didn't see that coming. Seemed like such a nice guy. Have no idea why he suddenly just went berserk and started shooting people. I think we want to walk in this light, but there's this horrible inconsistency within us. Uh, we want to appear as good people, but inside uh, we have the whole lot of dysfunction. And we try to hide the garbage. But what I've discovered is eventually that garbage catches up with me. Well, John goes on. He's not going to leave us in a hopeless state. He says this. But to those who did recognize who he was and who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. Ah, there it is. That's why the incarnation is so important. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John counts himself as one of those who believes. It's become personal for John. And, and he says almost the exact same thing in, in 1 John, in, in his letter. He says that, 
uh, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So John is saying, I saw it, I heard it with my own eyes, with my own ears. We felt it, this eternal life. And so he's saying, when we give you these accounts of, of Jesus, of him walking on the water, of, of quieting the storm, of, of rising from the dead, of, of Jesus speaking these words, these are not myths, these are not legends, these are, these are not wonderful spiritual parables. These are things that we actually saw and things that we actually heard about. We felt him do this. In other words, God became historical. The manger, the resurrection, the that the story of Jesus, it's not just a story, it's true. It's, it actually happened in history. Recently, I, I read a survey of Americans' attitudes towards religion, and, and it's like 92% of Americans believe that Jesus was an actual historical figure. 92%. That's pretty good. But when they ask people, do you believe that Jesus Christ is divine? Suddenly that number drops. In about half. So the average American believes that Jesus is, is a really good person who said some, some really good things, but not God. And so what John is saying is, is that these are either lies that you're reading in the Gospels, or they are eyewitness accounts, but they're not myths, they're not good stories, they're not legends. John says, when I saw him, I felt him, I heard him with my own ears, I saw him with my own eyes, then everyone would know immediately that John was claiming to be an eyewitness. And therefore, every reader of his gospel knew either these were deliberately fabricated lies or they were true eyewitness accounts, but they can't just be legends. They can't just be made-up stories. And if they are lies, let me tell you, they are some of the stupidest lies ever made up. <laughs> because there were eyewitness accounts to this. In fact, well, the Gospels say that 500 people at one time saw Jesus um, after, after his crucifixion, saw him risen from the dead. Now, folks, if you're going to, if you're going to write a story, a, a, a myth about Jesus being seen, risen from the dead in the Kindred Valley, you wouldn't write it a few decades after that happened. You'd wait at least 100 years until everybody who actually was an eyewitness is dead. Otherwise, people are going to be saying, well, you know, I, by the way, I saw it. I was there, you see. If you falsely write that 500 people saw Jesus and lots of people are still living who were, who were there at that time, you're going to have a hard time getting your religion off the ground. People are going to be, you know, uh, no, that never happened because there's no eyewitness accounts. So the point that John is making is that Jesus really lived, that he really did perform these miracles, that he really did the things that he did. And he really said the things that he said. And he really died. And he really rose from the dead. So maybe you're thinking, okay, well, pastor, what's the big deal? What's the really big deal? See, maybe you're thinking right now, I really like the teachings of Jesus. I like the meaning of these stories. The meaning of these stories is that we simply are to love each other and we're to serve everybody. And I really like that. And I, it doesn't really matter what you believe about Jesus. What matters is, is that you're a good person. And when somebody says that, 
they're saying it doesn't matter that Jesus actually lived the life we should have lived and, and, and died the death we should have died. All that matters is that we, we follow his teaching. And so what we're saying is that I'm not so bad that I need somebody to die for me. I, I can be good. I'm not so cut off from God, and, and God is not so holy that there has to be some kind of, 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 of redemption, some kind of uh, punishment for our sin. That doesn't matter. See, the gospel that John is describing here is, is not that Jesus came to earth, tells us to be good people, and then we're good people, and God owes us a blessing for being so nice and good. The gospel is that Jesus came to earth, lived the life we should have lived, died the death that we should have died, so that when we believe in him, we are accepted as his child, and we can live a life of grateful joy for all of eternity in him. In other words, if Jesus wasn't God, then all the things that he taught and all the things that he did mean nothing and we have no hope. If these things didn't happen, if they're just stories, if they're just parables, then what you're saying is if you believe, if you try hard enough, well, God will have to love you. But my friends, if Jesus was not God, then Christianity is simply one more moral paradigm that will crush you. Because you can't be good enough. You ever tried to be good enough? You ever tried to be more loving? Ever tried to be humble? How'd that work? See, all that will do is crush you into the ground. Because if it isn't true that John saw him and heard him and felt him, that Jesus really came to do these things, and Christianity is useless. It's useless. The Apostle Paul tried this. He, he writes in Philippians chapter 3, listen. He says, if anyone thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, he says, I have more. He's getting ready to do a little spiritual bragging here. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. The people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. <laughs> wow. How many of you can say that? I've been faultless. I'm not seeing any hands going up. And if your family's here too, that's why you're not raising your hand. Because <laughs> they know. They know. See, Paul tried to live life the first way. It says in his former life, he had lots of confidence. He did everything right. He did everything the law required him to do. But he says, I count all of that now as garbage. Doesn't mean a thing. Instead, he says this. I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, what does that mean? It means that we're not made right before God because of what we have done. It's not because we've earned it. It's not because we've lived the perfect life, but because of our faith in God's grace. You see, grace is everything. It's everything. Even the next breath that you're about to take, that breath 
was a gift of grace. And grace is saying that no matter what you have done, no matter how you have lived your life, I love you. Now, that's a hard concept for us to grasp because I, a lot of us here, I would say most of us here today, grew up thinking that we had to somehow earn God's love and approval. In fact, I would say that even if you grew up in a religious home, the message that was probably communicated to you was mess up and you're in big trouble with the guy upstairs. But grace is totally opposite. Grace says you are accepted and you are loved just as you are. That Jesus has done it all for us on the cross. See, folks, there's two paths that we can choose. Two paths that we need to choose, even here this morning. And one is to spend the rest of your life trying to earn God's approval by your effort by trying to be a good person, by trying to be a nice person. But the other choice is this, for you to simply enjoy God's approval by accepting what he did on the cross and enjoying that for all eternity. We can either earn it or we can enjoy it. Which are you going to choose today? See, God's grace in Christ has purchased your freedom. Freedom from being a slave to guilt, a slave to worry, a, a slave to bitterness, the remorse of the past and, and the fear of the future. Jesus came, he lived the life, and he, he died the death to set you and I free from those, those habits and those, those hang-ups and, and those hurts, the things that enslave us and those things that leave us feeling exhausted and empty. And that's why the incarnation is so important. John tells us that God's light has entered into our world and it's bright enough to dispel all of your darkness. It's compelling enough to draw you into this new kind of world and it can be demonstrated in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit who comes and takes up residence in your life. God wants to let his, God wants his word to become flesh through you <laughs> and through the church. God has invaded this world with his presence. And that is the reason why our world and our lives can be transformed from this pitch darkness into his glorious, glorious light. Let's pray. Two choices, God. One, to try to earn it, and the other, to enjoy it. God, we've tried to earn it, and it's worn us out, and we're exhausted, we're on empty, we can't do it anymore. So God, help us to choose to enjoy it, to hear your words, well done, good and faithful servant, to hear your words, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter. To hear us feel your arms, to hear you say, welcome home, my child. Oh God, help us to choose that path today. Set us free from our darkness. 
Set us free from all those things that hold us back. Help us to experience the freedom that you and you alone can offer. That word, that logos, made flesh.